Before we begin, please note this episode contains discussions of sexual assault, rape, and abuse, and includes explicit language, which may be distressing. Listener and viewer discretion advised. Hi, I'm Tracy Height-Smith. Welcome to Open Stance, the podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Jakia Lindley, Jakia is a writer, U.S. Air Force Staff Sergeant, Department of Defense Sexual Assault Victim Advocate, Certified Resiliency Instructor, Wife, and Mother. Jakia is the author of her memoir titled War at Home. This is her candid and vulnerable account of her experiences as a woman serving in the United States military, where she endured sexual assault, abuse, discrimination, harassment, and, as a woman of color, outright racism from those in positions of power. For many years, Jakia suffered the traumas of abuse alone and in silence, and her wars, as she powerfully communicates, were not in foreign lands, they are at home. Jakia risks her personal safety and career by sharing her story and life experiences in order to support the hundreds and thousands of countless military servicemen and women who suffer in silence and who have ultimately been let down by a system that was supposed to protect them. It is my honor and privilege to welcome Jakia Lindley to Open Stance. Hey there, how's it going? Oh, it's going really good. How are you? I'm well. So everyone, today we're speaking with Jakia Lindley. And Jakia, why don't you take a, a minute and let everybody know where you are uh, where you're calling in from? I am from beautiful Hawaii, and it is wonderful here. I live in Honolulu, and honestly, it's one of the be- most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. Is that where you're from originally? Um, no, from so for originally, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, but I moved to Canton, Ohio when I was maybe around three, maybe four years old. So I really don't have that much of a memory from Tennessee but I do frequent there quite often. Um, Gatlinburg is my go-to happy oasis. I absolutely love Gatlinburg. If you haven't been, you should go. The mountains are absolutely beautiful. Um, But I grew up in Ohio and I love it there. I love both of them. So how'd you get from Ohio to Hawaii? Oh, okay. Um, so I joined the military. So I'm active duty Air Force. And how I left Ohio was I joined the military, strapped up my boots, got on a plane and went to Texas. And that was my first time ever leaving my home. Like I've never left um, my family at all. So I was brand new, 18 years old, shipped down to Texas. And I guess it's kind of like a funny thing. It's like, oh, your first time away from home, like my first time away from home was actually the military. So it was kind of like a really strange feeling, very scary. Um, So from there, um, I've just been stationed all over the place. And then I met my husband and he was stationed in Hawaii. And in order for me to get here, we did a joint spouse. So I was stationed at that time in California. And then we did our paperwork and I got shipped off to Hawaii. That's awesome. What a story. Well, I guess just on a very personal note, sometimes people always wonder, well, how do you, how do you meet these people and and who, who are you talking to? And um, today is just, I find it's just so cool because I was going um, 
I was just researching one day and I came across this book called War at Home. And turns out you're the author of it. And as I was doing um, a little bit of reading, I, I discovered that you're in the military. You're, you're still active in the military, but you have this book that is about to be released in June, 2022 coming up. And it has some very um, heavy material that resonated with me um, around sexual assault and violence and harassment and discrimination and um, a whole raft of things. And this is your personal memoir. And I just kept reading about you. And uh, I did notice that you live in Hawaii. Um, and so that day I was like, God, I really, this girl connected with me and I don't even know who she is, but this story, I want to read it. So I actually tried to find the book and I, at the time I didn't realize it hadn't been released yet. So I went, oh, okay. Can't read it. And then I thought, well, God, I'd love to have her on open stance. I think, um, this, the story of the military and, and what is going on there is so important. And we haven't heard any of it yet for the most part. Um, and on my walk, I saw this rainbow and the symbolism was I got married in Hawaii and on my wedding day, there was this unbelievable rainbow. And I had a moment because it was a personal moment saying, okay, I've been through the wars in my own life with, um, as a survivor of trauma from sexual abuse, um, and rape. And it was that moment of, wow. I have come through so much and here I am today and feeling so much joy, so much love. I felt so healed and I thought it's possible. It was just an incredible moment. And the rainbow was that moment for me. And after I had read about you, I saw a rainbow on that day. So it may sound a little corny, but I went, yes, no. I'm meant to talk to this girl. So that's when I just got on the Instagram and sent you a literal cold call message and you responded and literally a few, few messages later, here we are. So I just want to say thank you. And um, it's really powerful for you to be here today, representing thousands and thousands of military men and women across the world. And we can't wait to hear your story um, and, and everything and where you've come from. So thanks for being here, Jakia. So thank you for that. That was so beautiful. My goodness. I know when I saw that message, I was just like, Oh, I was just like, I just started freezing. I was like, oh my gosh, someone wants to talk to me. And then I went to your profile and I saw open stance and I was like, this is powerful. This is where I'm meant to be. I was like, I cannot wait to talk to you. And I, we went to the messages and then everything was so organic, flowed so naturally. It's like, I met you in person. It's like, I known you forever. It's just like having that connection, like instantly. I was just like, there was a bond there. So I'm just so happy and so thankful that you reached out. I'm so happy and thankful that we're here today to have a discussion about everything, especially I know it's a very, very hard and heavy topic and not a lot of people are wanting to discuss this, but I'm so happy that you created this platform that is a safe and welcoming environment for people like me, survivors like me to be able to come on here and share their story. So thank you so much for building this. Uh, my pleasure. We all do it together. So um... Let's get into it. Um, so I guess the main thing is, and, and now that everyone knows, I, I don't know you at all, so I can't wait to learn more about you today. But when I read about you um, and your upcoming book launch, a uh, few things that describe you. You are a certified Department of Defense sexual assault advocate. You are a mother, you're a wife, 
You're a veteran, an active service member in the United States Air Force, and you're an author. So I thought, could we start with the first one? Because I don't know what it means. Certified Department of Defense Sexual Assault Advocate. Are you able to share with us um, what that is and what you do? Yes. So I'm glad you actually brought that up because I forgot to mention before we started, I'm actually on um, on call. So I'm on call for the next two weeks. Um, it's a sexual assault prevention response hotline. So whenever this phone rings, there's someone in distress, someone that's either going to talk about something that's happening. I need to either go meet them at the hospital. So if you hear the phone ring, uh, <laughs> that means I got to go. Um, so a sexual assault, a um, Department of Defense sexual assault victim advocate, my role is to support the victim through their healing process, whether um, they want to make a report and they have two options to make a report. They can either do restricted reporting, which means all the information is kept on file in our office. There's no name, no predator that's um, tied to the report. They just want to put it on record like, hey, this is like, it's like basically found a police report. Um, there's no person, you just put it on file. Um, then the second option is unrestricted reporting, which means the victim actually names their assailant and an investigation is started. And that what an investigation looks like is in the military, your entire chain of command is aware and is on a need to know basis. So your commander is aware as well as your first sergeant. Those are the only people that are aware of the investigation. Um, and if the other member is actually within a unit, they're aware that there's a, um, an allegation that has been um, brought to their attention on that other member. And then security forces, which is our military um, police, they get involved. So if the perpetrator is on base, um, they go and apprehend them, take them in for booking, pictures, fingerprints, everything in their initial interview. At that time, when they get booked, they can either decline until they get representation or they can talk to the um, to the investigators. But it's always recommended that you wait until you get an attorney before you start because um, you can self-incriminate. So it's always best to wait until you get an attorney. Um, and then from that, either way, with the restricted or unrestricted, the victim is always offered resources. They can go to the hospital and get a safe kit, which is a forensic exam. Um, they can um, get mental health treatment. They can get an expedited transfer only if under the unrestricted reporting. Um, the unrestricted reporting, when they get expedited transfer, they sort of call them ET for short, which means that the victim can immediately move from where they're at within 30 days or as quick as possible to get the victim from their location into a place where they're able to have a better support system in place. So for me, when I, so it's what it looks like for me when I had my first expedited transfer, I moved from Florida to California within like two months. It was very, very quick. So um, you're uprooting your entire life. So it's very, very traumatic for the victim. So that's why they want you to move to a place of support where you have family or friends or just somewhere completely away from the perpetrator uh, while you go through the investigation. Is that why you were transported for sexual assault? Yes, um, I was actually, um, in my career, I was actually transported twice. And I had the option for a third one, but I was deployed and I declined that one because I wanted to come back home and leave my deployment um, not early due to what someone did to me. So I wanted to finish my deployment out. Um, 
So I am there through the entire process for the victim as an advocate. I am there to help transport them to their appointments if they need help. Um, I am there if they if it gets preferred to a court martial. I am there every day in court. Um, I am there every single time that they need me in the middle of the night. They just need to talk. We need to go somewhere. I can't meet them at their house, but we can go somewhere public, somewhere safe where they feel comfortable, very quiet. Uh, we have an office um, on the base and we can meet there. It's like a little comfort room where you have like snacks, water, recliners, everything that um, you can decompress. So every step of the way I am there um, until they no longer need me. If they don't want service, victim advocate services at all, then that's that's their progress, that's on them. But if they want that support, I am there every step of the way. Jakia, that is such a critical resource available. Is that something that, number one, a couple questions, is that um, only, <clears throat> for the, only for the Air Force? Is that for all military branches? Um, all military. All military, so we're talking all U.S. military branches offer the service and, and resource. Yes. A and then the next question quickly is, as you have experienced this twice, um, three times, how well do service um, people know about this? Do they know, did you know about it? How do you find it or do they use it? So my first one was trial and error. So I didn't meet the criteria to get an SBC, which is Special Victims Council. So my first assault, um, I was a, I was deemed a witness. So I was deemed a witness to my own assault. How? So I didn't. How? I because at the time the military has been adjusting its regulations. We call them UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice. So under the UCMJ, my first assault happened in 20, um, 2010. And, nope, sorry, 2011, happened in 2011. And in 2011, um, what happened to me did not fall up under the umbrella for assault. So throughout the years, they've been redefining what is sexual assault, what is sexual harassment. Um, and what happened to me is um, I was brand new into the military. I was less than a year and one of my superiors tried to rape me in my work center with co-workers present and because he did not physically assault me and penetrate me I didn't qualify for sexual assault mm -hmm. it was just sexual harassment and even though his he was like fully exposed in the work center and I was a witness to my crime that happened against me and because I wasn't physically assaulted I did not qualify for any of those services. And no one guided me through the process. I didn't have a victim advocate. I didn't have a special victims counsel. I didn't have anyone guiding me through the process. Here I am, 18 years old, experienced my first now classified as assault. I was just by, my, by myself on my own trying to figure things out. Um, I had just left home. So I was gone away from home less than a year and I did not know anything. And everyone was had a plan in place for the perpetrator but there was nothing for anyone to do with me they just said oh okay well if you're so hurt about it maybe go talk to a chaplain and i would go talk to the chaplain and they weren't really well versed they you know they prayed with me they they i got all the information that i needed out i vented um and that was it i would go back home 
go to my dorm, sleep, go to work the next day. And it would, the cycle would just repeat. I was always by myself. And then being by myself, I didn't have the support group. So I see everyone around me retaliated against me. And I'm thinking it's my fault. And I, I don't have anyone. And then fast forward, now you're an advocate. Is that, um, how did you get to become an advocate? Is that a, is that a new role within the military or is it something that's um, just started? So you said you didn't have one yourself. Were they available or is that now a new offering? They were available, but they were only available to those who qualified for assault. Gotcha. So again, it's been, it's been redefined over the years and they've been fine tuning what qualifies as assault, what qualifies as harassment. And we're still trying to figure out the gray area between the two of what what it is and what it isn't. And it wasn't until 2015 where I was finally classified as a victim of assault. And that's when all the services got offered to me. I got a special victims counsel. I got a victim advocate. I got my expedited transfer. I got everything, but it took four years living in chaos and mistreatment and retaliated against for four years until the law changed where I was now able to get services. And he went to jail and everything, but I was still stuck and constantly mistreated. And as I started learning, the best advice that I ever received was they can take everything from you, but they can never take your knowledge. They can never take your education understand the law, read the law, get into the books and learn. And that's what I did. I got into my books. I got my education and I start digging into, and that's why I do a lot of advocacy work now because I'm becoming, or I became what I needed back then and what I didn't have. And that's what drives me to be a victim advocate. I want to be there to make sure that every victim, every survivor is supported. They have everything that they need because when you're going through trauma, you're you're not thinking clear and you're in survivor mode and you may not know all the resources that are there. You don't know all the resources that you can actually tap into and have access. That's where I'm here. That's where I come in. So you're in survivor mode. I got you. I got you the entire time. I'll make sure that you do not fail. I make sure that you are well covered the entire time. And this leads to a very important part, um, and I've come across it in some of um, in some of your highlights with with your book that we're going to get to here. But how hard? What are the risks? How hard is it to come forward to report to be just to get an advocate? You actually would have to make a phone call and um, put a claim in. And let's talk a little bit um, from your perspective about that. What that means to someone like yourself and many hundreds and thousands of other victims that actually have to come forward and voice their complaints and and talk about what those risks are and how hard it is, how afraid people are, what discrimination they may face or, or what those obstacles are just to get to that point, to utilize that resource that's available. There's a lot in between those resources I can imagine um, and what you have to do to, to receive them. Yes. So in order to, so let's say we'll use a scenario because I see it all the time where a victim perpetrator is in their same unit. They work in the same space and they have the risk is, okay, they're looking at their reputation. 
But then they're also looking at the, the assailant, whoever um, hurt them. They're looking at them within a unit. Where are they standing in a unit? Is this person a well-liked individual? What is it going to look like if that person comes forward against the unit's most top primed candidate? Like, are they going to be believed? What's going to happen? Are they going to split? Because the work center, no matter what you do, the work center will be completely divided. So now you have... Um, team victim versus team perpetrator. And what if you know the team victim side isn't as strong as the team perpetrator side? So now you open up that, um, I, I hate to say the can of worms, but you open up that door for everyone to have an opinion, everyone to have um, their side. And it can be very traumatic for the victim. Um, and then, you know, the gossiping, even though we try to, or units really do try to limit the gossiping is going to happen, especially if the members are both in the same unit. So there's a lot of risk where victims, they will internalize it and they will try their best to not voice it because when, as soon as they voice it, they already know what's going to happen as soon as they do. So not only are they trying to heal from what happened to them, now they have to protect and heal themselves for the second, third, and fourth order effect of things that's going to happen as soon as they file a report. And it's going to be whether they do restricted reporting or not. So okay. they have a really hard time going forward. As an advocate now um, and a survivor yourself who's been through this process, what what's your advice to victims out there right now that are literally suffering in silence and carrying the weight of all this, just going about their daily routine and active service? Um, do you have anything that could help support or educate them on, on how to get through to the next level? Or if they're, like you said, in the middle of trauma and suffering from from any number of symptoms from PTSD and, and um, uh, sorry, from, from any of those um, symptoms that you're gonna experience, how would, how would they move through that if they're in the crutch of it right now um, and just debilitated, but having to work every day and yet you know there's help on the other side, what, what could you help them with there? Yeah, so the first thing I wanna say is you're not to blame. It is not your fault. And the moment where you come to realize it is not your fault, that is the first step you take in your healing journey, in your healing process. Um, because from then, you're, you're starting to move to survivor. You're starting to move to overcomer. And then it's just like one step at a time. Find someone that does not judge you, that listens to you, that is very close to you. Find that one person and just convey to them how you're feeling, what happened, and to just tell them, just let it all out, and then take your time. Um, it takes victims, survivors, so long to even come forward against their abusers. Some never do. So just talking to someone, that trusted person, and just sit on it. Just sit on it for a little bit and see how that makes you feel. And then the next step, talk to some another trusted person and see how that feels talking to people that you know, because when you go to file a report, we're strangers to you. You don't know us, you're very vulnerable. So when you're getting to that comfort zone where you're able to at least express it, express it to your closest friend, your family member, then you can make those steps to try to talk to maybe a chaplain. And if you're not religious, um, talk to another, like a therapist or a trauma, or maybe you just go to the hospital. Um, medical providers always take sexual assault reports. They did not have to report it at all. 
and just talk to a doctor and say, hey, I've been assaulted, or this happened to me, what are my options? And they can talk to you from a clinical medical standpoint about, okay, well, we can do this, we can do testing, we can put something on file, you can make a report, and then you can just keep it, and you can just keep it yourself. And then, and just keep coming. And then, you know, attend like SAPR, SAPR briefings. And in those meetings, like there has not been a meeting where a person has not come to me after it was said and done just to, just to talk. And then maybe do like hypothetical questions to a trusted person that's, um, that can take a report for you. Like hypothetically, this happened, what does it look like? Like, what is it truly? And have them walk through those steps. And then again, take that information back and sit on it a little bit. Because what we don't want um, victims and survivors to do is come and make a report and immediately regret it. And they shut down and they, they don't want to press forward. We don't want to pressure anyone. We don't want to force anyone because it is your own personal um, story. It is your trauma. I can't force you because if I do, I'm traumatizing you in a different way. So all these steps is little by little, talk to someone, take a couple of days, sit on it, see how that feels with you, and then keep moving forward and little by little, and then you'll get there. And then when they reach our office, we, we got them the entire time. Someone can come in, do, they can spend hours just telling their story, and then we never see them again. Sometimes that's all people need. They just need to get it out, and then they just want to put it to pass, and they move on, and they heal, and they won't let that define me. So you know what? I got it out. This is not mine to carry anymore. Come to our office and we'll carry that that we will carry that burden for you. You don't have to carry it anymore. That is not your weight to carry. And we do our best with that. Is um this goes to the modern world. So that connection is so important. And in, in, in so many cases, that first step is the critical one. And if that one doesn't work for some reason, nobody answers the phone or it's that wrong experience, that might be the only shot that this victim takes their whole life. So that, that yeah. first step is really critical. So um, considering the technology that we have available today, um, and you mentioned, Jakia, come to our office powerful. That makes me want to go to the office. It does. But the reality is not everybody is um, okay to go to the office or can get to the office or they're scared to go to the office or there's a million reasons they can't get to the office. Now we have this technology, for example, mental telehealth, right? People mm -hmm. have counseling services and advocacy services and all kinds of uh, life going on on our phones these days. So is there a way, is there an offering currently where a victim could use a phone um, in terms yeah, of how they offer mental tele yeah, mental telehealth? Yeah, mental telehealth. So right here. call me. Right. So it allows it allows you, which is the opposite of my experience. I had to go to an office. I, I had to go to a counselor's office for two years. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. a horrific experience, but it was the best. Nowadays I would much prefer to sit in the privacy of my own home when I know it's quiet, I'm not interrupted, it's not my time, it's not my, and there's so many elements and barriers that are removed by the fact that you can use a phone. So tell me about that and, and how you use the phone to allow people that safe space where they can just jump on what they know, which is a phone, and they don't have to go anywhere um, and, and still receive what could be life-saving um, help and support. Yeah. So we have the 1-800 uh, um, staffer hotline number. Um, every base has their own unique number. 
So we have a primary and unprimary for right now. Then we also have an alternate, and then we also have the deputy SARC. So the deputy SARC is the one that is over the entire installation. So you have three people to get in contact with. And if all three of us don't answer, it goes to our wing commander. There's, there's always someone that is going to answer that phone, no matter what, any time or day or night, someone will always answer the phone. And we can take reports over the phone. We can stay on the phone and just vent however they need to. And then we also have a list of resources that they can get in touch with. So if they don't wanna just talk to um, a SAPA representative, we have numbers for mental health. We have numbers for the chaplain. We have numbers for the hospital. We have numbers for um, the um, counseling services, mental health services out in a community that does pro bono work. We have all these information that if you if one doesn't work with you, we got something else. If that one doesn't work, we got something else. And if that one doesn't work, I will sit here and I will research all night until I find something that's going to work for you. Amazing. Like I will not get off. The, yes, I will not get off the phone until I do a warm handoff, making sure that this person get the services that they need. Uh, you're you're powerful, my friend Jakia. Let's let's go to your book because the whole the whole initial introduction to you was on the back of this book called. I'm going to read the title here. the The first part's easy to remember. War at home. It really hits. And it's your the title is War at Home: A Call to Reform the Military Justice System. Um, and would you like to give? Um, how about we give a little synopsis of the book and then the beginning? Where did the memoir come from for you? Oh, the book. You mean yes, this yes. Book okay, right here. <laughs> now we have listeners that are just audio, and we have lots of listeners that are tuning in to watch on YouTube. So yes, hold that book up one more time. Okay. As you and I had a little text message exchange this week, and you told me yesterday that that is you've just literally received your first copy for the first I time. Did. And oh my gosh, like I when it came in, I was literally waiting outside all day for FedEx or no UPS. And I'm just sitting there and just waiting. So he comes up and he sees me waiting outside. He's like, oh, this must be the house. And That's I'm just it. sitting there jumping like a little kid because I know my book is in there. Okay, so I didn't even finish the title. You tell us the title, please. And um, give us a give us a little synopsis in your words and and what was the catalyst from for this book? Where's, where's this come from for you? Okay, so the book is called War at Home, A Call to Reform the Military Justice System, and to give voice to the ones who need to break the silence, destroy the stigma, and end the cycle of abuse. There's a lot of content in this book. I can't wait to yes. read it. <laughs> yes. Um, so with War at Home, the synopsis of the book is War at Home, is that Every time, like you don't, have, people think that our enemies is overseas in a foreign land, different country, but it's not our 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 enemy is actually in our American soil is our own people, and that's the thing. You don't have to look very far to find your enemy, and that was that was for me. It's just like war at home. Um, I had war wherever I called home. I had war at my job. I had war at my actual own home. So whatever you feel and think is home, that's where the wars are. And with, when it comes to the call to reform the military justice system, and as we briefly talked about how in 2011, I was completely by myself. I didn't have no resources. I didn't have anything. And it didn't take until four years later for me to get those resources. And it, was, it took four years for a change to happen where 
I was sexually assaulted and it took the military four years to say, hey, you were actually sexually assaulted. And there are so many things that are still happening that we still need to have reform for. And one of the ones that I'll give a quick, um, quick overview of it. One of the ones that I was so devastated on was when I finally came out against my abuser. I, um, it didn't, it didn't get preferred to a court martial. So the military prosecutors don't like to go for cases if they know they're not going to win. So they'll refer it to the commander or the or the convening authority, which is the wing commander. And the wing commander does not have any legal backgrounds. They don't have any education in the justice system at all. It's kind of like a an additional duty or you know those special duties or something that's outside of your job performance, but you kind of need to do it just to fulfill it, but it's not your main thing. Like I get to it, I can get to it. And that's what one of these is just like one another assigned duties for the wing commander. And I had an F-22 pilot judge jury on my case of sexual assault. And that was it. And I'm like, oh, a pilot decided my fate on how. The- how did that make you feel, Jakia? I was extremely, extremely disappointed because during this particular case, I had a wing commander that was through through it all. He was he was there the entire time, and he knew me. He knew the perpetrator. And when it COVID happened, so it kept pushing my case to be heard. So then, when it finally got my case to be heard, he he went to a different base. So I had a brand new commander and I was no longer at this base anymore. So I had a brand new commander judge my case with my perpetrator still physically on location. His whole entire unit is advocating, fighting for him. I'm not there. I don't know who's fighting for me, advocating. They don't know me. And they're like, okay, case closed. Don't do it again. Raping, raping her was wrong. Shame on you. And then what they told me was, now you have a better understanding of signs and toxic relationships. So you're better suited to leave the next time to prevent this from happening again. And I'm like, did you just victim blame me? Did you just tell me that I now know better so I can do better next time to prevent this from happening to me? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That would have been tough to recover from. It was because I sat on this phone because it gave me one last chance to talk to this convening authority before he made his decision. And I sat there for 10 minutes, pouring my heart out, letting him know everything, just like I was a therapist. I just, I just fire hosed everything. Cause this was my last chance. And he was like, okay, thank you. Anything else? I was like, no, okay, click call ended. And then a judgment was the next day and he walked free. Nothing happened to him. Although he was um, found and I can't say guilty because um, there's another reason why I want to do another reform and we'll get more deep into that at another time. But because of this intimate relationship that I had, he was my ex-husband. So this intimate relationship that I had with him, I didn't qualify for sexual assault services. So there's two different programs. There's sexual assault services and then there's family advocacy services. So sexual assault services are punitive. So if they get found guilty, they can go to jail, court martial, everything versus family advocacy. If there was a relationship that existed 
an intimate relationship, ex-spouses, is non-punitive. So the only thing they can do is refer the person who assaulted you to counseling, and that's it. So up under the family advocacy program, he was found guilty of raping me. And the only thing they gave him was go to therapy. And that was it. So I had to rely on the law, the legal side to help me. And because it came down to, can you truly rape your spouse? Is that really a thing? And all these kind of things. And that's what it came down to. Even though I have witnesses, proof of everything, it was just like the, uh, the prosecutor was like, well, how was he supposed to know raping you this time was wrong? I'm like, isn't rape wrong regardless? <laughs> I was just like, okay. So it was just very, very difficult, very, very hard. Um, it's like, no matter what I did, no matter how much proof I had, it, it just wasn't enough and it will have never been enough. I asked if I had done a rape kit, would that have been enough? And they said, oh, well, he could just say that you had uh, sex with him and then went to the hospital to get a rape kit. It doesn't prove anything. I was like, oh, okay. So even though I had his admission of guilt, he admitted um, that he did it. Um, it didn't really matter at that point. So it was just like, I just got failed multiple times. And I talk about that in my book. And with this book, I honestly wasn't ever going to talk about it. I was just going to talk about my experiences, just military side. But then, which is why it took so long to even write this book, because I just kept I just didn't feel right and feel whole. I was like, I'm putting out half my story. It's like, it's not right. I was like, but I couldn't write about it. I just, I wasn't there. I was not there mentally. I wasn't there spiritually. I wasn't there. I wasn't healed. So I could not put him or put my story in this book because I was still protecting him. I was just like, oh, I don't want them to think bad. I don't want anyone to think any other way. But I just, it was not sitting well with me. And then when I went back to it, like three years later, I went back to the book and I just started writing about it. And I just started writing and journaling. And then after talking about it and writing it, I felt, I felt free. I felt really free. And it was like, and the more I kept writing, the more I wouldn't allow, and I didn't allow this to hurt me anymore. I put pen to paper and once I closed the book, it was done. I never allowed him to control me and my thoughts and my feelings. I, I did not give him access to that anymore. So now I'm able to talk about these experiences because I'm talking from a place of healing. I'm talking about a place where I can educate people, learn from my mistakes and they may seem, I know when people read the book, they're gonna be like, whoa, this is so obvious. And I'm just like, well, I, my name's not Captain Obvious. I, I missed all these signs for so many years. But then it's just like my stopping point or my tipping point or rather an exit point is different for everyone. Everyone's journey is completely different. Not everyone gets off at the same bus stop at the exact same time. My first red flag is probably someone would have left immediately. Well, it may not have been, it wasn't my stop. And then the next stop, was another red flag, a couple more people will leave, but it wasn't my stop. And, you know, keep going. And then when I found my stopping point, I exited, but there's someone that's still on that bus because they didn't exit at the point that I, and that's okay. And that is okay. So when, let's um, talk about the release. When is the release, uh, official launch of the book? 
It is going to be June 22nd. So actually a month from today. So June 22nd, 2022. Okay. We're coming up. That's exciting. Now, um, Jaki, I know from listening to you just right now in this last half an hour, um, there are going to be a lot of people that want to reach out to you. How, how are people going to do this? And do you want them to is what's the next level here? We've um, in terms of launching the book and then you've basically mentioned you're going to, you're starting a movement. This is, this is not just one book and I'm all done. You've, you've been on a healing journey. You've reclaimed your power, which is obvious and so proud of you. Um, and the next step is the launch of this book worldwide. There's military service men and women all over the world, um, that may find themselves, um, resonating with your story. So what happens next from here in terms of connecting with you and joining forces, or you're going to need teams of people to help reform the military justice system system. What's that vision look like and, and how can we help support and, and connect with you? Yeah. So um, connection will be on social media. So I am on Instagram all the time. I'm on my email and all this can be found at my website, jmlindley.com. Um, so go to connect with me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, my email, as soon as you fill out the contact information, I immediately get an email. Um, and then my movement is going, I want it to be my voice, my war, but I'm thinking about just break the silence is the movement, break the silence, because it's going to, in order for things to change, we have to break that silence. We have to let people know like, hey, this is not a isolated incident. It's not just one person. It's not just this, um, just this area. It's, a, it's global. It's just, it's not unique to the military. There's, if you look into the media right now, we see so much stuff that's going on with domestic violence in the news right now. And that more people, like if you look at the Me Too movement, it takes one person to speak up. And I believe the military's Me Too movement is coming now. And a lot of them are prior military because they feel safe because the military cannot hurt them. And I want to say the military is the leaders that they find themselves within the military because the military is not a bad organization. It got me to Hawaii, it flourished my life. So I'm very thankful for it. But whenever there's power and greed, there's going to be someone willing to abuse it no matter where you go, no matter what organization you're in. And with that, you don't have a lot of people that are actually inside the organization still active duty speaking out because of that fear of retaliation, that fear of reprisal. And my God, I feel it almost every single day. There's been times where I was like, oh, I want to scrap this because it's getting too hot. There's people that are just like, oh, you need to scrap your book. Oh, are you sure you want to do that? Oh, you're going to lose your career. You may end up in jail. Oh, you're going to lose rank. And I'm just like, oh, I don't want to do decisions that affect my family. So they're very, very real. They're very scary. But one voice it just takes one voice to stand up and then other another voice and then another and then next you know you can't ignore it all are you scared right now releasing this book i would be lying if i said that i wasn't i am extremely terrified every single day that i get closer to it i am terrified so i was just telling you before we start talking about two weeks ago i think it was a couple of days before you reached out to me actually i was going to scrap my book. I sat down with my husband and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I was like, there's so people are going to judge me. People are not going to understand. People are going to call me all kinds of names, but I'm not worried about that. I'm strong in that sense. 
um, because I feel like my ex-husband called me worse. <laughs> so I'm okay with some name calling, but I'm afraid that my decision is going to affect my family because I'm afraid that what if um, military puts me in jail for abusing my freedom of speech? Or what if I highlight them in a bad negative way that they just wanna take my rank even though I'm an amazing airman, I do amazing things. What if they wanna strip that from me? Or what if I violated something in a way that I didn't know and all I wanna do is just speak out and tell a story about what happened to me and how the system failed me because it did. It failed me and it failed thousands of other men and women and we have to recognize that, be from, be better than that and heal from it. And we can't heal and make changes if no one's speaking. We were operating in a way where it's just like, okay, there's a couple people that are upset. Maybe we can make a little changes here and satisfy them. But if we're not putting our stories out there to let them know just how horrible it actually is, we're not gonna make changes. And this story, we're at home, I put everything out there like, if I'm making them look bad, I'm making myself look bad. Like I am very transparent. I'm not trying to save my face. It's, it's like everything is so raw because you have to be raw and transparent and very honest and open about your flaws as well in order to seek change. Because once this book is out, there's literally nothing someone can bring up that I didn't already put in the book that I didn't already know. There's nothing embarrassing out there. I already put those embarrassing stories all in the book. So there's nothing where it's just like, oh, she did this. Oh, I already, already wrote that in there. So it's and, it's, very, and what you're what you're doing, it seems like, is you're creating a bridge. And that's why when you talk about some of the other movements, the Me Too movements or the Larry Nasser scandal and um, other military scandals, uh, it, it can, that's what you're saying. They're all different organizations, but the same basic concept of um, abuse of power and and sexual abuse within these organizations coming from the leadership and the in the top levels. Um, but it takes that one voice. You know, one brave voice, which starts connecting the other voices and bringing, bringing the masses together, which creates the force, which is the movement. And, and that's where you're sitting right now in um, what I've felt from you in the last couple of days is, you know, it's a terrifying, terrifying place to be. And, um, but without it, as you very eloquently said, um, you can't begin to change and reform will not be possible. So these are these are the very initial catalyst um, of incredible change to come. So your voice, your book, uh, you being here today, putting yourself out there and risking so much um, is is really remarkable. And um, I'm in awe of you right now. So just yeah. thank you for that. Now, where can where can we get your book? Um, we'll definitely share all the information on this podcast um, and on all my sites, but um, where can where can listeners find you and, and get a copy of this book? Okay, so it will be available on Amazon and then it's going to be available. Um, I'm working on that right now to get into major retailers like Walmart, Target, Books and Noble, Books a Million, you know, all the other bookstores as well. So it, it will be available. We'll find it. Yeah. Um, now, what we've also talked about, Jakia, is that we're doing two parts to this. And the reason for that is, number one, I wanted to give you this platform today because what we talk about is so personal. Um, I love 
letting people hear who you are, where you come from and, and know you a bit and, and just feel that connection. Like I felt reading about you and having um, a little chance to, to chat back and forth, but there's a lot more to your story that will be uncovered once your book launches. And we've talked about that privately. And that is something that um, you've chosen for good reason to uh, keep under lock and key just for a bit, a little bit longer till you release your book. Um, but that's another conversation that we'll have when that time is more comfortable to dig into um, some very, very tough subject matter that's um, quite incriminating. And um, I look forward to that as well. Um, but um, is, there, is there anything else um, that you would like to add um, in this space right now today with, with our listeners and, and the journey that you've been on? Uh, I know it's been a road very tough. Uh, did not happen overnight. So just a little bit on that process where some people look at you, Jaki, and think, oh God, I could never be like her, but yet you are us and you have been in those dark, tough places. So just a little moment to share that hope and inspiration for people. We're, we're all looking for that bit of courage to get through the tough spots, to end up and keep moving to places where you are today with a voice and, and just powerful conviction. Yeah. So what I tell myself and what I tell other people is that you have to keep pushing. And as uncomfortable as this topic is, and it makes people very uncomfortable to talk about, it is even more uncomfortable living with it. It's even more uncomfortable internalizing it, not knowing where to go and you're carrying it. That's what makes me uncomfortable. And that's what makes other people uncomfortable. So if people are uncomfortable listening to it, I'm uncomfortable feeling this and carrying it. You know, let's be uncomfortable together. How can I make this conversation? I'm, I'm, I don't need to dilute myself in order for someone to be more digestible. They make it easier to go down. I don't need to do that. This is what happened. Now, what are we going to do about it? What are, this is a problem. We're so quick as a society to fix all these other problems that aren't as, I guess, taboo and insensitive as this. We need that same effort and energy for victims. It is a, it's a silent crime. And we're walking around with invisible wounds that people don't want to address. We need to address it. We need to have and hold space and we need to fix it because it is a horrible plague that is running around that no one wants to address. And we shouldn't immediately just say, oh, okay, well, how do we know if this is true? We can't see it. Okay, you may not see it, but I feel it. I'm wearing it and I'm living it. So just walking your truth, own and believe in the power of your own voice. If no one else does, I will. I will listen to you. You will listen to them. We will all create that space and we will be there for them. One voice and one step at a time. We're breaking the silence and we're opening that door for them so they can cast stones and throw all these different kinds of names from at me. As long as I'm making it easier for the next person to walk through and then the next and the next, it's literally all worth it. Every single thing. <laughs>